the my public defender had told me what to expect. Yeah, I will go up in front and the judge will ask me what's going on and then he'll turn to you and ask you what you're, what's happening with you as to why you want to have be your own lawyer. And the um, and then about 10 minutes later, he comes over and he says, I've changed my mind. I am completely in uh, agreement with this motion. And I didn't put two and two together until after we had gotten, um, I'd had a little uh, back off and, and saw what the time frame was. But his, he, I, I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. So I had his document, which was the motion to remove him as my public defender. In it, of course, he says, I suggested it. No, actually, he suggested it, but I wasn't going to refute it's a lie, but that was the way he could do it to save his own face. And um, but down at the bottom, it was kind of ambivalent. He he wasn't really going along with the motion or not going along with the motion. It was my suggestion to get rid of him. In that ten minutes, he came back and he says, "I'm going along with the motion. I want out of being your public defender." And I said, "Fine, okay. Now I get what you're saying. So you want to be totally." Uh, out of the picture. He said, yes. So we went into court, and as all of us have learned, the court is just a stage. It's a performance. All the rituals stand up, sit down. That's just to say you're alive, your name's dead, all that kind of crap. It's just performance. So I had my props. I had my red well. I had all this other materials that showed that I was very much in control of this situation. Of course, they don't know that I had the Hartford Van Dyke in my back pocket. I had Scott Palmer in my state's back pocket. So, I mean, I was really very well backed up. And Wednesday, to give you a little background of just that week, Hartford had helped me from the Friday before, what was this, the 11th, so the, the 4th of uh, May, and we, oh, the 3rd of May, we had started working on the paperwork that on Wednesday we were ready to record in the recorder's office, um, uh, yeah, office down, up in Greenville for us, and file it in the public record, pardon me, in the court's record. So it was public records for actually recording the document and to file it in the court's file office because it was a document called Commercial Affidavit hyphen Notice of Interest. It was beautifully written, but on Wednesday, they refused to record it in the recorder's office. Number one, because I'm from Spartanburg, which is a half hour away. Number two, it didn't have two witnesses. Three, it was not land, dirt. We were stymied, and of course I was on my high horse and said you're discriminating because I'm from a different um, county, and uh, they were also pulling the corporate um, snare, if you want, to keep me from recording the actual document. And and my friend who was driving me, because I am without wheels because of the December 15th incident, 
my friend said after I turned away from them, he, they, two, the two of the lady and the gentleman turned to each other and said, corporation? It's a revelation to us that a lot of the people that work for the government do not know they are incorporated. They're not aware that it's a corporation they're fully working for. We, the people who are outside that facade, are very much aware of it. Because you can go on um, either Dun & Bradstreet if you want to, but also on the um, state site. They don't blatantly say it's a corporation, but there are definite ways you can find out. So we went away from the recorder's office. We called Hartford and said, Hartford, they won't let us record it. And, and Hartford, you said a wonderful phrase. He said, when people stop you from doing something, you look at it again and you correct it. Well, I got to tell you, Hartford is powerful. He so corrected it that we, we, he has it in the state court, uh, county court in Greenville. And we went to the federal level with it and put in the titles that he's been teaching us about that John and I looked up and we actually ran off a, a double-sided paper with all those titles in it. And so going forward to Thursday, we kept polishing. Hartford was under the stress he had to get to the library to see the document that we had it right and um, we had it right and then we went to um, and I've forgotten to mail that to you Hartford and we got into um, um, so we went back to the recorder's office with we've had two witnesses we've got it notarized my friend's a notary so he was so super and we got it notarized. We got it. The two witnesses, my driver John, and even the uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the guard at the at the college I go to. He witnessed it. Went back to Greenville to the recording office, and we were again denied at the recorder's office. She said it has to be dirt, and you have to live in Greenville. And you can't record anything here, which are all lies, because all recorders' offices are to do is record documents. It's not to um, be judge and jury over it, but that is what they're doing at Greenville. They do it here in Spartanburg. That's why I've had to go to Greenville, and many of us have found that across this country. So we got we, we did not get it recorded on Thursday. We went to file it. We got it filed. We checked the file. And my friend John is, is well-versed in a lot of what should be in the, in the file. And he said, where's the document that says why she has to be at court tomorrow? And we all looked through it. I mean, the clerk looked through it. I looked through it. John looked through it. There was nothing in there to say why I had to be at court on Friday the 11th. So we went to the prosecutor's office. When we went to the prosecutor's office, um, we asked for it. Well, those people are all gone for the day. I mean, by now it's, it's almost, it was probably 4 o'clock. And um, the, they couldn't do it and they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. 
and we asked what time, and she said, oh, 9.30. I said, well, I've got a card that, that said it was supposed to be 8.30. Oh, we always get everybody there early. <sighs> so, um, but what they finally did, because we, uh, John kept pushing, you've got to be able to show us this document that states why she is there. It should be in the file. Well, they wouldn't do that, but they did give me the copy of what my my public defender put into the court, which was in the file. So we got through with that. The next day, uh, I talked to my public defender, what was going on, his change of things. So fast forward, we got to the, our time was called forward. Before I got called forward, two other people, a young man and a, I'm going to say a middle-aged lady, um, also wanted to get rid of their public defender. So I was the third one. And they went up with nothing in hand. They just were explaining why they were going to do it. Well, I went up there with the props, the files. Of, I had colorful little what they called red wells, you know, so your files stay in one place. I was an actress. The judge turned to the um, public defender and said, so why are you here? And he gave the spiel about the motion. And then he turned to me and he said, okay, what can you do? And the public defender, uh, pardon me, I said, well, sir, let me give you, uh, first of all, I need to know your name because I had a list of all the judges. And when he said his name, his name wasn't on that list. So I had to write it down. His name is Stillwell, S-T-I-L-W-E-L-L. Then um, I said, and so I have a hearing. I'm not hearing as well. Could you please put your mic on? Now, all these are supposed to be public hearing, and they're up in front going, just like they're whispering. And I'm like, I can't hear a thing they're saying. So the issue here was that I said, could you up go on the mic? He said, I'll do you something better. I'll speak up. And I said, fine, that's great. And then I got out the document. Before we left Spartanburg, John and I made copies of Hart, Hartford's um, file document and the two pages of titles, which we made as a single page double-sided. And I provided one for my PD so he knew what I was saying. And I turned to the lady that was next to me. Nobody introduced her. And I guess she turned out to be the prosecutor. And so I held it out for the clerk, and the clerk took it up to the judge. Because the public defender, I mean, the prosecutors have been all bringing it up to the uh, judge. And... Um, and so I said, the document speaks for itself, because it did. I didn't have to say a thing, add a word, make, put a shoe in my mouth or anything like that. The judge read it. I know the public defender was glancing through it. And the, um, the judge said, so I'm going to grant you this. And with my granting that you know your rights are to have blah, 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 and a whole list of things. And I, he said, do you understand? I said, I comprehend. And then he said, and you have the right to have an attorney who will be able to protect you and serve you and do all these wonderful things. 
And uh, he said, do you understand? I said, I comprehend and I will probably rebut some of that. He said, I thought you would. (laughs) And see, I didn't buck him at all. And we respect each other, as um, as Hartford said. When you have due respect, you get something through. And that was what he was going to do. He said, I will have an order made up for you to have that. And then the prosecutor said something which I could not understand uh, because she mumbles. And then uh, the, the judge said, and you will write it up. Because whatever she said was probably contrary. And so you will write it up. And I just got a letter yesterday that she had written up a proposed order. I left it in my son's car. I was so excited about reading it. and But I, I wanted to go over it. And I also got a letter yesterday from the clerk of the court that was mailed on the 14th that was saying, and this is part of the question and why I got to this point, uh, where they're going to remove that filing we did in 30 days from the 14th of May. Now, we sent in a commercial affidavit requesting response, basically, didn't we, Hartford? Aren't they supposed to respond in 21 days? Uh, And what is this thing about removing it from the files? What does that mean, Hartford? I don't know. Okay. Uh, I I asked my son to text me the numbers. It's something, something, dash 30. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not exactly clear about what's on those in those two writings, but I couldn't answer. Yeah, well, I'll try and send you all three of the of the documents what we filed and the two letters, so you can see it. Because a lot of times they, uh, they're, they're trying to get out of their stuff, correct? They can't remove it from a file, not the way it's been written. Thank you. I thought they couldn't remove it. So they can't remove okay. anything except in this file. They cannot remove it from the file. Well, this is part of the shenanigans they're doing. I have heard it from many people. Well, that's, Even that's, our friend Tom Dooley, he's had documents removed. and uh, He has had them removed. Somebody else had them removed. You've got to be careful on that phrase. No, they he, don't. he didn't have them removed. Somebody else had them removed. But they do do it. Yes, you're getting your wording wrong. You say somebody had something done and they didn't have it done. Somebody else had it done. Got to be careful of that wording. Okay. He, but he, to say that he had it done means he ordered it. I, I get what you're saying about he. Uh, from in the file room, it's been removed by someone. If the, If you have the evidence filing information that has been in, put in there, it has to stay in there. And if they remove it, it's theft of evidence. Well, uh, what we're hearing, and this may be why you're being so specific, what the people are having happen, they get their papers stamped as received. And it's not what they're having happened. It's what somebody else is doing to them. You've got this backwards, and you're going to have to correct it. They're not well, having it's being done to them. You have to get your language correct. 
They're not having it done. They're not doing it. They're not ordering it. They're not having it done. It's being done to them. Correct. So when they bring it to the window, they give it to a lady or a gentleman. That lady or gentleman stamps it. Yeah. Is that the correct procedure? And that lady or gentleman supposedly... And you get your copies. And you get your copies stamped also. And yet when you come back, and and you're under the impression as the person bringing it to the window and watching the other party stamp it, you're under the impression it is supposed to go in the file. That's right. But the actual document when the file is brought to you at another date, it's not in the file. That's when you file criminal charges for suspension of evidence. Okay. You okay. See, you don't you don't argue with these people anymore when they break the law, they break the law. Some people think it's an argument, it's not. If if it's supposed to be there and it's not there, you file criminal charges for theft of evidence. Correct. Everybody, and the criminal complaint process is so simple to do. It's much better than having to argue with briefs and go through your civil process and criminal process of, of their system. It's just a simple matter of keeping keeping them on the uh, what you say on the ticket. It's it's com- it's commercial. All things commercial. All of it's commercial. It's a commercial court. It's all revenue. It's about. It's even. It's more fundamental than that. Mm. Your time is your property. If you have to go to a court hearing, you want to keep track of your time, because they have to. Pay, when it comes down to the end of the thing, and they, you, they, you win. You also get paid what's called your fair, fair process time. You know, it's not a free trip. Remember Title 42, 1994? Right. No opinions or involuntary servitude. When they put you through a legal process in the court, they consume your time. They sure do. Somebody is consuming your time. You keep track of your time. You find out what the attorneys are charging, and that's what you, when you get your case won, that's how much money that you charge them for you consuming your time. Everybody, thinks, everybody thinks that it's the opposing attorney is the only one that gets paid. I mean, the one that's uh, conducting the case. That's not true. When it comes to the end of the process, they have to pay for the, the uh, inconvenience. They have to pay you from portal to portal, from the time you leave your house to the time you get back, considering that you don't stop and buy groceries on the way. Uh they have to pay you a reasonable amount. You find out how much time it takes you just to simply come from your house to that court. You got two trips, one going to the court and one coming back home. You get to charge for both of those. What's if they the fail to fail to bill you, if they fail to pay you for it after it's straightened out, then you charge charge them criminally with evasion of the responsibilities. They're going to charge you for it. You have the right to charge them for it. And you charge them at the rate they're charging their client. If they're charging their client $100 an hour, you charge them $100 an hour. What's the title? Title 42 what? 
Title 42, Section 1994. 1994. And the, and the criminal uh, offense charged for it is Title 18, Section 1581. And we had all of those in there, so it was good. And when you have to file, when you have to file criminal charges against somebody to get things done, uh, that, and you're doing it under the United States Code, they have to pay you. The United States government has to pay. Actually, you can file, put in a, a bill to the United States government because it's their law that says you, if you're cognizant of a law, of, of a crime that's, if you are aware of a crime. <laughs> If it's uh, cognizant under the laws of the United States, and you don't uh, report it to somebody, a judge or someone in, in civil or military authority, you can be fined and put in jail for it. So if you know a crime has been committed relative to United States laws, then uh, if you don't report it, you, it's mandatory you report it. If you don't report it, you can be imprisoned. That, that means that at the end of the process or during the process, you get to put in a bill to the United States government for having served the United States government by filing the criminal complaint. And that's under their own laws, Title 42, 1994, and Title 18, Section 1581. And if the government doesn't pay the obligation, you find out who's putting a stop to it, and they get criminal charges for interfering with their own law. It goes on and on and on like that. There's no free sandwiches. There are no free sandwiches. And so that's what we need to start doing. Yes, you need to be just as businesslike about it as the courts pretend to be. Uh, one of the things that uh, I did say to the judge was the issue of uh, because of exactly what we went through on Thursday and not seeing that document calling me to court, and it should have been in the file. And so I said to the judge, I said, sir, will I get all the filed documents that are per this case? And he said, no. And I said, what do you mean by filed documents? Well, attorney notes. I said, granted, I want to know about the actual documents that are to be filed in the file and for the court, will I get a copy of every one of those? And he said, yes, you will. Well, yeah, you just have to hold them to task. That's it. That's right. See, she, see, she never filed soon, that one. You see, it, it only, you only have to, a, a criminal com- com- complaint can be as short as one par- simple paragraph of two or three lines or something like that. Even one line would do it if you picked it right. That's all you have to do is make the complaint, and then you check off the boxes that are, are violated under the Constitution. And uh, that puts, puts the cash value on it, the fair market value, prepares it for being put it out in the form of a lien. And so if they don't prosecute it, it automatically switches to a lien, and you become the prosecutor. And they have 90 days to answer your affidavit. It's three three months Jewish international law. They got three months to answer it, and if they don't answer it within that time, it becomes an accounts receivable. So it's all a matter of bookkeeping. You're being inconvenienced. You get paid for the inconvenience. Excellent. It's a bookkeeping system. 
They don't yep. like to you to think of it as a bookkeeping system, but they're using your time, your labor, your your gasoline to get there and so forth. And so all of that, you just keep a very good record of what's uh, going by. Always keep a dark, keep a uh, bio biographical statement of what's happened. An autobiography. You got one pretty good, and it was interesting listening to you just do that. But you I should guess. have that. You should have that whole thing in writing, point by point by point, because you get to charge for every point that's on that list. Excellent. And I have a fee schedule. Um, that I've already made up about, but I had not put in the travel time to and from. I put in appearance time. Yeah, but the thing you got to find out is this is what the office of attorney is charging his client. Because uh-huh. that's the way they're running their marketplace. You you get the the value that they run. That that uh, most people don't know that you can do that, and then you got the criminal charges. That adds up really fast. If, yeah, they viol- if they violate 30 points of the Constitution of the United States under Title 18-241, that's $10,000 for each one of those. So that's $300,000 right there. Works for me. Yeah, it works for other people, too. And they have that attached to their property. <clears throat> you notify their credit card companies what's being done. They lose their credit cards because the credit card companies don't want a person buying property that they can hand hand over and sell to somebody else and take the money to pay their court debts with. They don't want people using credit cards to pay court debts. So a person loses their credit card when uh, it's discovered that they're doing something in court and and they're, they're getting tagged for it. Very good. And another, and another thing that you include in that when you go after their property is their homeowner's life and their homeowner's insurance. Most, uh, as I understand it, most homeowner's insurance includes, includes a certain amount for uh, legal fees. So homeowner's insurance, the credit cards, and, if you get, and uh, when you get it really tight, you can turn it into the credit reporting companies, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. Right. And then uh, they, you know, if they've created the problem, they have to shoulder it. Yep. And it's all business. You keep it in commerce. It's public. It's not the courts. The courts have no jurisdiction over commerce. They'll make you think they do, but they don't. They have no jurisdiction over commerce. That was the part because, if, as I said, this is this is a commercial affidavit. They said, "Well, all the courts are commercial," but this is what it is. The courts have no jurisdiction over uh, commerce. That's right. The courts are not commercial; they're domestic. They don't have to have bonds for domestic. They have to have bonds for commercial. If a judge makes a judgment, his judgment is going to be in the language of it. It should be this, it should be that, it should be this, it should be that. The word should. When it goes to an order, it is must, will, or shall. Those are the three words that uh, you look for. And when the judge makes an order, he's compelling you to do something. Then you come into the peonage and involuntary servitude angle of it. 
he's compelling a commitment to some type of thing that you give up your money or your time or your labor to satisfy the opposite side in the court. So if the opposite side has been engaged a lawyer and the lawyer says, Your Honor, I've been, have spent uh, umpteen hours at this and so much per hours, and I have to get some of my pay. I can't continue this. So the judge says, well, I'll rule in favor of you having a certain amount of money at this point so you can continue what you're doing, and uh, I'm making order to that effect. What he's done is created money when he does that. So when a judge gives an order to compel either labor or payment of money, he's creating money right there at, at that point. You could, If he uh, puts on there that you're going to have to pay up front $4,000 to the opposing attorney to, to keep in, keep your position in the case, and that's a, he's created $4,000 worth of currency right there. And you could technically take his order and put $4,000 in each corner like a dollar bill has his numbers in each corner. You could put the dollar values of that order in there. But in order to create a currency, he has to put a backing behind it. And if he doesn't have direct backing, he has to put behind it a bond. So to give an order, a judge has to have a bond. To give an opinion or judgment, he doesn't have to have a bond. So the judgment is in the classification of domestic, but the order is in the classification of commercial. And he, the judge creates a negotiable instrument. He has to be able to prove that it has backing. Well, now, that brings up the um, uh, the fact that uh, she made the order and she sent it to the judge. But he will, he's asked, he's asked to sign it. It's on he his will bond. He the autograph on it, correct. Yeah. And you see, when you, if you want to bring a judge's attention to that, you take his order. And he says a certain amount has got to be in there and paid. You take his order. You can do it right in the courtroom. You take the order. If you if you have a way of copying it quickly, you hand it over to somebody. They take it out the door, make a copy, and bring it back in. If he's ordered $4,000, you put $4,000 in the corner, each corner of his order. And as soon as he's, because that's what the order says he's created. You say, now, Judge, since you've created this $4,000 negotiable instrument I want to know what you have to back it and he has to come up with a backing otherwise he's committed fraud whoa it's very simple all you have to do is just follow the money yep and uh, I would I would suggest that uh, after you've given such a fine biography of this writing that you uh, read the thing. Do you have it there with you, Handy? Yes, I do. Now I want to explain. I want to explain something. I want to explain something else too about that document. Okay. I heard you refer to it a couple of times that it was something that I had done. The fact is, I asked you questions, and you told me what you understood and what you believed. Because, you see, I can't write your affidavit for you. You have to understand that that has to be your affidavit. So I had to know that everything that you you had implied to me, I had to understand it, and then I had to bring it back to you. Because I I can't create your affidavit for you. You have to have that as something you comprehend. So 
the situation was, I, what I did basically is I told you what the elements were that you had to have and why you had to have them. And, but those elements were all yours, and they're all written relative to you. And when you read it to people, they will hear that. They will understand it. You composed your you composed that brief, but I just had to ask you a lot of questions in order to get to the end result. So don't the the thing that the thing that I contributed to in that basically was to give you a blank form and show you what what some of your options were. It was done in the form of words, but I uh, laid before you what your options were. Only options that you were comfortable with were to be put in that document, and they were going to be according to your limits of what you could do. That's the way you have to do those things. You never take a person beyond their own depth. And so you were able to uh, go and do things, and you found certain things that you were denied. That gave a further indication of what had to be added to the document not just because of uh, you hadn't realized it or I hadn't realized it, but you, we, there are certain things you can't realize. And one of those things is you can't realize what somebody else is, how they're going to react to what you do. Mm-hmm. So by going through, it seems like a, a lengthy process with, in what you did. The document you filed was a very tight document. As they, as they will hear when they when you read it. And that is a model document. Anybody can use that document. You have to understand. As long as they can understand what is in it, what it means, and how it works, they can use it. If they don't understand those things about it, though, they can't use it. What's the name of the document? What's that? It's called the Commercial Affidavit Hyphen Notice of Interest. It's a very important. It's a very important concept. They try to limit it to real estate and property, but it doesn't. That's that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It applies to anything of value in a person's life, especially anything they have to invest their life in in order to have. So, yep. it's a, it's a it, if you really understand the depth of it, it boils down to an itemized statement of the things that you have a right to that they have no right to take away from you. It's an itemized statement of goods and services and those things. And so anybody anybody could take that document that you put in and use it in court. It would have to be custom-made to their own needs, of course. But that's only a matter of saying which direction and how much and how strong to apply each of those things. So it's basically... The whole field of law consists of learning yourself and what you're worth. That's really what it boils down to. The common man on the street is taught that he has to hire an attorney. He's not, in, he's not encouraged to look at himself in the mirror and say, now, what is it about me I want to save? What do I want to protect? What do I own? What is mine? What do I not have to go to a, uh, an attorney for? What is mine and what is there in this for the attorney? Is he promoting himself or is he helping me? And so forth. And so the purpose of law is to clearly define, the purpose of these legal papers is to very carefully define what you believe about yourself, your perimeters, your boundaries, your extents, what you're able to do, 
It's, a, it's an itemized statement of your, your capacity to live in this world and to uh, protect what you have because you have a natural right of self-defense. That is That goes almost unwritten, but when you understand that all the animals in the world live on a food chain, they all have to defend themselves. They all have to look out for their own life, and most of those animals out there are food for the next animal. They don't want to be in the food bucket. And so... The situation in life is you have to learn to estimate your value, to recognize, to put a value on yourself, and not let people get away with the idea that they can use sleight of hand and other forms of fraud to take away from you what's naturally your own. And so that that book, that writing, commercial affidavit, it's commercial because almost everything you do in your life is a transfer of either matter or energy. You're either passing some object from one person to another or you're passing energy from one place to another. That's commerce. It has nothing to do with compassion, love, or caring, or any of those things. Commerce is a, is a natural process of making things move or making energy move. Can you recommend a good book about that? What? Can you recommend a good book about that? I can't understand what he's saying. Uh, can you recommend a good book on that topic? All the all the books I write are on that topic. Okay. And I've got to uh, just to give a little uh, break for you, Hartford. I have a law fan, and he may drop off soon because he's down in Australia, and it's wee hours for him. He wants to know uh, if you have uh, – he thinks – he said, I am in the understanding Hartford has written two books on money. Uh, can he get those still from you, or does he have to go on um, retina, uh, the retina program with Arnie? Uh, he, he can get some of the information by looking at scannedretina.com or 4-cd.com. There's a certain amount of material that way. The books, he's, there are two manuals that I have that are in hard copy. They're about 140, average about 150 pages. One's 139, the other's 159, I think it is at this particular time. But uh, those books are, one is on study, the fundamental principles and processes of commercial law is one of the books that gets into this. And that's 160, roughly 160 pages. The other one is... uh, CR96-500C, which is a court case in Seattle that I applied these processes in. So one is on theory, one book is on theory, and the other is on practice application. And they're both available. Um, my, tele- my telephone number, I'll get a telephone number forth. Uh, my telephone number is area code 509 738 3039. That's 509-738-3039. And I can give direct information that way. The other one is that my ad, my postal address is Hartford Van Dyke, Post Office Box 831, Kettle Falls, Washington. That's K-E-T-T-L-E, like kettle on the stove. Kettle Falls, F-A-L-L-S, Washington. Zip code is 99141-0831. The 0831 is a repeat of the post office box number. 
George Hartford Van Dyke, Post Office Box 831, Kettle Falls, Washington, 99141-0831. Now, those books are uh, that to to pay, you know, to pay sixty dollars. Those books are sixty dollars each. Uh, Sixty-five. I usually put in a disc with each one. I'm a little bit behind on that. I'm getting get some material together for that again. But I have discs that go go with this material. How to create currencies for local communities is one of the things on the discs. Then there's the right to keep and bear liens, which is like the right to keep and bear arms. That's another writing in that. The bank book is another writing in that disc. And the disc itself, if a person is interested in it, is $5 postpaid. I'm a little slow getting it. I had something I had to do with my computer. But uh, I've got that straightened out. So uh, they're available. Uh, $5 postpaid. Just, I just keep it simple. That gives you an introduction to what other things are available. The hard copy material of those two manuals is hard copy, uh, and I I insist under certain processes that a person have those that I know that they have the manuals that they're doing to, to do certain legal processes that they have those manuals. I can't guarantee what you'll get off of the internet. Sometimes people modify the stuff when they put it on the internet. So I, I can't guarantee what's on the internet, but I do know that what a person has when they get my two manuals, and then then there, I set the price a little bit up there so that people can call me for, on the telephone. I can give them time on the phone too. So it's a combination of books and, and the, the ability to access me to get the information and to know how to get around in the, in the forums and the processes. So I understand that people are going to have questions, so I encourage them to call so that they get it right. No, no point in doing this stuff unless you do it right. It's trouble if you don't do it right. So, uh, is that enough information for the person? Yes. Uh, I think that will help Lawson, et cetera. Yes, he said, thank you, Hartford, awesome. And um, I, I want to say I'm, you know, I'm packing to move to Charleston. And, of course, I had to go through my stacks of paper that I've not gotten through and finished the reading, even though on some of them I've started the reading and didn't complete. And I found two Hartford Van Dyke books on banking. And I'm going, oh, my God, hey! I was so excited because I never tied the names together with, I mean, I must have gotten them quite a while ago because I didn't at all remember even having the documents. So I'm very proud to have two of your documents already in my hand and have no idea where I got them. But I have. Do you have my two books? I have the two banking books. Um, let me see what I've got. I've got them You're in not what is one of the fundamental principles and processes of commercial law? Oh, I don't have those. I don't have your big books. Those I uh, want to pay for. But these two, I ended up having them. And I'm just, I uh, I should have it in here. 
Uh, I thought I had it right here. Legal concepts. But I, I'm breaking it all out, and then I'm definitely, oh, I know, I put you under Van Dyke, not under H. I have uh, Silent Weapons of Quiet Wars, of course, I'd gotten years ago. But the checkbook for the veterans of the United States of America and the bank book. Yes. They're both printed, you know, they're small type and stuff. But I got both of them. And again, I, I, I can't say who to thank for it, but it's definitely yours, released into the public domain. Yeah. And I appreciate that. So, uh, but I, I'll get paid by my great uncle Sam in another couple of weeks. So, I'll be able to send you some more money, Hartford. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Oh, you're doing great. Oh, we have Charles on. Welcome, Charles. But uh, how are do you want me to read this document into the uh, recording so people can hear what you said? Well, see, well, okay, go ahead. Yes, that's fine. It's the wording. It, it, it took us several times around to get it because it had to be something that was understandable to you as well. And, and people, I want you to really comprehend. I was typing it. Hartford was seeing it in his mind computer. So he was going over this in his mind, in his brain, and he was wording it and seeing how it goes because of what I may have said, as he referred. And I really appreciate that that feedback because you're right. Affidavit has to be from my perspective, and you were teaching me. It was a great lesson. But here I'll read it. In the Greenville County 13th Judicial Circuit in the Court of General Sessions regarding case numbers, and it's my four case numbers, to get your reality, one's for the no license, one's for not having paperwork for my insurance. I did have insurance. And then three is no registration. And fourth is my resisting arrest. I am a violent woman. They said I even fought them after I got out of the car. My hands were over my head, so I have a kind of a bad visual of how could I fight them. But we'll, we'll proceed. In the United States District Court for the District of South Carolina, Greenville County, attention to county recorder. Remember, well, I'm, just, I'm going to break there. Realize there are two headings on that brief, one for the state and one for the federal. Right. Okay, that makes it possible for the, that means you have written it to the state and you've automatically removed it to the federal at the same time. And see, the state, is, the Greenville County is attempting to remove it in 30 days. So uh, this will have, we'll definitely have a contention on that. Well, go ahead. I won't interrupt you anymore. Go ahead with the read on it. Okay. I just I wanted to clarify those. There's two headings on that brief, two different courts. Two different Correct. Two different bodies received it. I, I will note that each time I read so they do get that. Okay, your failure to accept this instrument for filing will engage the use of the following United States Code, Title 18, Section 1581, 241, 242, 1622, 
then Title 18 U.S.C. 4, Title 18 U.S.C. 3, and Title 42 U.S.C. 1986 and 1994. Responsibility Informant Public Proxy, and that's the full name, Patricia Ann Lewis, pursuant to Title 18, Section 4, Title 42, Section 1994. See the Constitution for the United States of America. Article 4, Interstate Commerce Accessibility of All Acts, Records, and Proceedings in Form State to Uniform, State to State, and Amendments 1, 4, 5, and 7. Title 15, USC, Doc Tracer Flag. And we'll ask, when we finish, we'll go through what a tracer flag is. Then in boxes, I had the state of South Carolina, county of Greenville, and then there's a middle section with a little um, parenthesis, and then the other section is commercial affidavit hyphen notice of interest, and there's a bottom line for a three, paren three week, paren Jewish, paren, paren 21 day statutory, paren grace period. And that's what I was referring to with, um, with Hartford about the 21 days from the, from the filing, which was on the 10th of May. So this is dated May 10th, 2018. Now we're getting into the body of the actual document. I, Patricia Ann Lewis, and affiant state and affirm as follows. I, Patricia Ann Lewis, have natural, personal, and commercial survival self-defense and monetary interests in handling my own legal cases. The damages uh, slash costs of each of the cited cases controversies exceeds $120 and guarantee a trial by jury. As a human being, I have the natural, personal, and commercial rights of self-defense, which are guaranteed under the First, Fourth, Fifth, and Seventh Amendments of the Constitution of the United States of America under international Jewish commercial law, and in the initiation of all lawful legal processes and summons to guarantee the exhaustion of all pertinent commercial interests, commercial remedies, and commercial reliefs. In exchange for these constitutional guarantees of personal and commercial protections, all civilized people have the responsibility to practice law to the best of their ability, regardless of the conditions of having a license to do so. I, Patricia Ann Lewis, have the due process right of nature and of law to raise and present my own knowledge and understanding of the natural principles of truth. Then there's the issue, and that is capitalized and it's on its own line. And we're going into the issue. I am being defrauded of the opportunity to present my own thoughts and defense. The judge in this present immediate case is imposing upon me a public defender who has not proven to me 
or to the world that he is capable of telepathically understanding, appreciating, or representing me or my thoughts. I, therefore, demand a three paren Jewish paren paren 21 days statutory paren continuance of the legal processes in these four cited cases to prepare my own commercial affidavit objections to the processes being imposed upon me and to receive commercial affidavit responses to them. I, Patricia Ann Lewis, certify that I have read the foregoing instrument, all caps, commercial affidavit notice of interest, and know and understand the contents thereof and that, to the best of my knowledge and belief, it is true, correct, complete, and not misleading. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then I have that signature of the name we've used through the document, and it's an autograph. And then I had it notarized and two witnesses. So it was a total complete, and it has been crimped with the notary's um, seal. I rest. Whoa. <laughs> Did that get you? Did no. that not state over and over, this is commercial? Who wrote that? This is what Hartford stated previously. He said, "You, um, I gleaned from, from me, the speaker here, that what he could put into the words on the pages, on this page. And it is a one-page document. It is a uh, Times Roman nine font. So we got it all on one page. How long did it take to put that together? Was that a one-day task, a few hours, a couple days? It was, how long did we work? We worked on it Friday evening. Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, so about five days. And now that it's been completed, can it form as a template that people can customize that template to suit their personal uh, situation? Because now it's a template. This is exactly what uh, Hartford was mentioning, that if you take it, you have to change it to your, your particular case. Did that answer your question? Yes. So it's a template, and you just input the specifics, and that would serve for everyone to do it immediately. If they're in the case, is that not true, Hartford? It's a universal instrument. I mean, it's it it brings it right there. That's why when I got that letter, uh, Hartford, from the uh, now this was this came from the um, clerk of the court. The letter that said, "In 30 days, this is going to be removed from the files." And as soon as they do that, you file criminal charges against them. Great. Should I warn her of that? You don't have to warn them. They said they're going to commit to crime. They're smart enough to know they shouldn't. Right. You don't baby people in commerce. You send them a bill. 
There you go. <laughs> now, when you send a bill, uh, this has been my question. I was wondering if I send it to the, because I have a true bill that I'm uh, organizing with my time uh, uh, spent, but I did not have the travel to and from in it. What I would um, was wondering, do I send it to the prosecutor or do I send it to the clerk of court now? Well, you're sending the court a bill for what is demanded of you. So the clerk of court is whom I should send it to. I think you should send it to... The basic rule is everybody gets everything. Okay. <laughs> I'll send it to them all. The one, the one that you have... Most people don't know or recognize this, but the court administrator can stop any judge he wants to. Yes. The court administrator is... There's a court administrator and there's a CEO, chief executive officer, and they can be in a small town. The same person can be both things. Stop it all. I've heard the clerk really runs the court rather than the judge. Yeah, but above the clerk is is the uh, court administrator. He's a commercial person. Well, that's who the the clerk of court is, the administrator. That's what they call it now. Well, no, if the court administrator, then they're liable for seeing to it that all the bills are paid. Somebody somebody governs all the input-output on the cash in that c- c- corporation. There's chief executive officer, CEO, chief executive officer. Right. Sometimes it's the court administrator, sometimes it's the clerk. It depends. If they, if it's a little town of 300 people, you know. <laughs> You're multitasked. <laughs> multitasked, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Does anybody else have any... Um... Let me explain something about this. It's the, the person who was just talking to you probably would like to know this. Yeah, it's Abraham, yeah. Abraham. Um, there are there are basically five things you've got to keep track of in a court in a court process. Five things. Number one, you've got to keep track of your time. Uh, and I mean by your time, your biography. It's called a timeline. You have to have do a biography of what is happening so that you have all the pieces of evidence. Uh, if you see an event happen, what you witness is what's called evidence. And what your feelings about it are would be called comments. The world can see the same thing you saw and be, bear witness of it. That's one of the characteristics of real evidence is the ability to have witnesses. And the other side of it, what goes on in your mind, that's personal, it's, we call it comments. In other words, what you felt about what happened and what laws you would have used to, to argue it and so forth. And so when you do a biography, you have two major things that are in that biography besides keeping track of the time order of things, you keep track of the time order so that you have the proper cause and effect relationships. Effects happen after causes, so there's a time relationship. And when you do a biographical thing of of your writing, of your experience, all of that, it breaks down into two basic things. It breaks down into the things that can be witnessed by other people, which are called events, and then the other is comments. And so when you 
when you write your biography, you write down what you saw and you write what you feel, felt about it. And you can make a standard form up just to keep that alone, where your rows in your form are your dated lines. And then you have a column to write the events in and a column to put the comments in. Is this all on number one? What? This is all on number one. This this is number one. And so what you're doing is it's a a bookkeeping system of your time and experiences. And when you, technically when you go into a court process, what you have is two briefcases. You have a briefcase that has all your events and you have a briefcase of all your comments. And they're related to each other by tabs. So uh, event number one, uh, event number one will uh, the actual entry number one will be an event number one and a comment number one. And so one is in one briefcase and one is in the other. Just imagine it that way. This is the easy way to see it. All your events go into one briefcase ring book. All of your comments about them go into another ring book, and they're similarly tabbed, so one corresponds to the other. What your purpose is in going to a court process is to marry those two things together because if you marry them together you won if you can marry them together you won your case. So that's basically how you view a court process as consisting of events and on the one side and on comments, uh, points of law and all your arguments on the other side. And your task in the courtroom is to be able to to marry the events and the comments to prove your point. That's basically how it works. And so it's very important that you have a good biography. And what I what I suggest to people is when you have an event happens in your court case, take the time, sit down and write it out completely. And then type it into your computer if you can, completely. Then you go to sleep and the next morning you wake up. And when you wake up, you start the process again. You write it all over again without looking at your first notes. You write the whole story again, and you type it in if you can. And you do that three times at best. And by the third day, you will have gone back and picked up all the fine points. It takes time for the brain to link all these things together. That's why you do this in sequence. Because the second day, you'll discover things that you didn't discover before. The third day, you'll discover even more. But you also have this uh, problem with regard to this is that when you go to sleep at night, your your surface memory is diminishes by about a half to the next day. So what you your memory, if you put your memory down immediately and then you go and sleep for eight hours and you wake up, you'll find that you will have forgotten about a half of, of what you just put down the day before, but your mind will connect to things in, in closer detail so you'll see things you didn't see. You do that about three times and you have the thing pretty well mastered. Then you take all the stuff you typed in in the machine and you merge it in its proper time order and you will have a very, very clear picture of what happened and you will have a very clear picture of the laws that are involved in it. That's the best way to do it. That way you compensate for the day-to-day loss of 50%
but you gain at the, the connecting level that your brain puts the pieces together and will see things that you hadn't seen before. And it teaches you another little thing about it. You gain a great deal of humility realizing that you have two minds working. You have a conscious mind working and a subconscious mind working. You begin to understand you're not just one person, you're two people. And that's very valuable knowledge when it comes to dealing with people in the court system, especially judges. This paper that uh, she put in was a one-page paper. The judge will always read the first page of a case. He might not read the second page as well easily. And if he's faced with 150 pages of reading, he's certainly not going to like to have to go through the 150 pages. He'll be angry all the way through. He won't want to read it. He won't want to know it. He won't want anything to do with it. But he has to do what the job calls for. But if you put, if you learn to package your first page and get the, all the main details in the first page, he will read that. And not only does his conscious mind read it, his unconscious or subconscious or superconscious, whatever you want, I call it the higher mind because it's the real workhorse. It will read that first page too. When he consciously reads it, his higher mind will have a photographic picture of it. And if he turns the page over and looks at the backside, if it has the backside, or looks at page two, he might want to kiss it off if it's a bunch of philosophy and theory. But his higher mind will not kiss it off. His higher mind will have to take a photographic copy of the second page. And so he, this this judge is going to look at that paperwork. The first page he'll read, the second page he'll maybe try to shut out. But his higher mind will start telling him, you don't screw with this one because you've got problems if you do. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the most important, if you go to a, a legal firm company and you buy a legal form for let's say you go to Stevens Nest Law Firm Publishing Company in Portland, Oregon at Stark Fifth and Stark Street approximately. And you ask for a, a, a lien, let's say a chattel lien. A chattel lien, the original chattel lien will be the number twenty chattel lien. That chattel lien was has a low number of twenty because it was done in the pioneer days in the beginning of the of that state. It'll be two-sided. It's, it's characteristic of many forms. The two sides contain the basic arguments and, and a place to sign the paperwork. And you'll notice on a, on a number 20 chattel lien that you part way down the page it says you get $20 for filing this lien. Under, under such and such statute, you get $20 for filing this paper. And on the next page, somewhere on the page, you'll see you if you honor uh, statutory law, such and such, you get $20 filing for, you can enter to, you know, in the cost of your lien to the person. What they're trying to get you to do is sign on those lines because if you take the $20 for yourself, you've converted that document from commercial to statutory, then they have jurisdiction over it and then there are courts. But if you don't sign on that $20 line on either side of that page, it stays in commerce, and their courts have no jurisdiction over it. See the little wow. games they play? Say that again about the statutory and, and the commerce. I need to hear that again. Everything in the courts is under domestic jurisdiction. It is not commercial. They don't have to be bonded for domestic. They have to be bonded for commercial because they're making money. They're creating money with the paperwork. 
It has to be backed. It has to be bonded. In case they're lying or they're creating a monetary fraud, there has to be some way of holding them accountable for it. And that is the bond they have to have. If you, if you, let's say, I'll, I'll give you a first-class example of this type of a situation. Let's say you you do your commercial process like you have just done it, mm-hmm. and you go back into the court. You put in affidavits that they have to answer, and they haven't answered the affidavits. In other words, they're cheating on the process. They're supposed mm-hmm. to answer all those affidavits within 21 days. So you can pile up, pile up the affidavits, things they've got to answer, questions they've got to answer. Everything I sworn to, everything you do is in affidavits and it's commercial. And you do that within the 21 days. They have to answer every single one of those affidavits point for point, categorically, or they, or the case is frozen right there. It can't go any further. Now, they, you, you get up to the court scene and they still haven't answered that affidavit. You put in a notice to the court. I have put out affidavits. They have not been answered and I have not yet exhausted. So the parties in this case have not yet exhausted their remedies in commerce. That goes to the judge. He looks at it and he says, well, hmm. Mr. you suing this man. Did you answer Did you answer his affidavits? He'll say, no. The judge will say, well, until you answer his affidavits, this case stops. Now, what I recommend that you two people do is go out in the hall. And if you can't settle this between you, out in the hall, take it outside the court and out in the hall. And if you can't settle it, come back in the court if you want. And we'll see what we can do about it. Well, you go outside the court, and he will settle it with you. You have a problem. But it's his problem because... You have the option to walk away, and that court can't go forward with that case. And if they do, it's a criminal charge against someone, against the judge. Anybody else continues with that case. You have, uh, you're, un- you're still in control because your affidavits haven't been answered. That man turns around and goes back into the court. And the judge is ignorant of these facts, and he proceeds without the other person. That's called ex parte, which means outside of the two parties system. If he works that case, he's liable for it because he told him, go outside, and if you can't settle it, come back in if you want to. If you come back into that courtroom with that man, you have consented to being in the domestic domain, and he no longer has to be bonded. If you go out in that hallway, hallway with him and he doesn't want to go along with you, you don't go back into that courtroom because as soon as you do, he can do anything in that courtroom he wants to that's, it becomes an equity court at that point, even. He can do anything he wants to, and he's not liable for it. Wow. But if you don't go back in that court, that judge better not go forward with that case, because if he does, it's fraud. You said domestic jurisdiction is on the one hand, and what was the wording that you used on the other hand? What did you say? You said that there was domestic jurisdiction on the one hand, and, and commercial on the other jurisdiction. Hand, commercial jurisdiction. Okay. If it's commercial, there's four kinds of courts. If you can keep track of this, you can keep track of major control. There are four kinds of courts. There's the court of public opinion. That's the street. The court of public opinion, you can work with newspapers. You don't have to have court briefs. That's when my favorite when I was doing this stuff on the street. If you've got a criminal complaint you file against a public official, you take it down to your local uh, dollar uh, 
uh, what you call dollar ad, uh, nickel ad papers, your senior citizen papers, the little papers, you know, that you the throwaways. Well, what you do is you go to one of them with your all your work pasted up on layout sheets or however they do it today. Run a few thousand, run a couple thousand copies, and take them out and put them in the bus booths. You put them in the judges' chambers. You put them in the law libraries. Uh, the uh, title insurance companies. Everybody gets everything. You put them out on the street. That's how you fight your battles on the street. You don't fight them in a courtroom. You fight them with newspapers or flyers. And you can put them up and down the rural route as long as you don't put any advertising in it. You can put it in the mailbox and say, whether you put the stamp there, you say, this is this uh, legal notice. You have public legal notice on the top of it. You go put it in a person's mailbox, a farmer's mailbox. It says public legal notice where the stamp would be. You say, uh, this this uh, legal notice is pu- public legal notice is posted pursuant to Title 42, Section 1986, or or Title 18, Section 4, or both. Postman may not remove from the box because if the postman removes it from the box, takes it down and all these down to the sto- uh, post office, they want to charge you postage for piling them in the box. But if you name the name it straight across as a public legal notice. They can't remove it under under Title 18 and Title 42 United States Code. They dare not remove it because then the postman's committed a crime. See, so you, you control these things. You control your own press that way. I used to fight my battles that way. I put up 25 issues, approximately 25 issues on the street, 4,000 copies average, 100,000 newspapers. Newspapers always win. If you've got it down that way, a judge doesn't want to see his newspaper on the street. You put them in all the bus booths, all the way from the outside of the city, all the way downtown, and then you sit there in your car, and you watch them coming off the bus reading your newspapers, and you know nobody's taking them, all, taking them out of the bus booths. You police your own action. That's the way you do business and commerce. That's on the street. That's, that's, that's the court public, of, that's the court public, of public opinion. opinion. What's the next one? The next one is called a trial by jury with a with a ability of what's called a jury uh, nullification, which means a jury has the right to to, to stop or block or uh, total out any law they want to. The courts don't like you to know that, but a jury has the power to expunge any law they want to expunge in any case they have to. That's a trial by jury. In other words, a trial by your peers, preferably, people in your own community. So they know you. They know what kind of a person you are, and they can come to your defense. A trial by jury. And you have a right to anybody as your assistance of counsel. No matter what they tell you, you have the right to your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, or anybody else you want to stand beside you. And if it's a military issue, you get yourself a military man to stand beside you in full dress uniform. And watch the judge's eyes bug out. You have all kinds of possibilities when you have those two courts, because those courts belong to the people. That's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And it does not fail. Believe me, when you do business that way, it does not fail. That judge sees that, that newspaper on his, slipped under his door of his chambers. He looks at that newspaper, and he can see his own local newspaper saying, judge loses, judge loses election. That's what he sees. You put the truth in print, <laughs> and you put it in their hands. They believe a newspaper because you're telling them the next newspaper you'll be looking at will be your local newspaper, and they'll be telling the same story. 
And if they don't tell the same story, they're going to have charges against them for false information. I did that to the Billings Gazette in the free, free, uh, Freeman case. Now, they put out stuff in the newspaper that wasn't accurate. I printed the newspaper and I put their masthead on my newspaper because you have what's called a publisher's lien on them if they violate you. If they don't tell the truth about you in the, in the writings in the public, you have the right to print your own newspaper with their masthead on it and make them eat it. They'll threaten to sue you, but they don't dare sue you because they didn't print the truth. You have power on the street. You have nothing but sheer power on the street. And once you understand that, you realize the common man, that a man that's got to be a law-abiding citizen, he is practicing law in his highest sense. He is the highest lawyer in the town. He that follows the law is the lawyer. These people who run around and call themselves attorneys are fakes. And you don't have to follow their rules. You can operate completely on common sense. You don't have to hire a lawyer at 100 or 200 or $300. And if they don't listen to you in the courtroom, file charges against them for violating your rights to due process of law. That's going to get them a lot of $300,000 loss in one step. There's no fooling around in this business. I, when I put my first criminal complaint out, there was a man that used that criminal complaint against the prosecuting attorney's office, a prosecutor in the prosecuting attorney's office in Multnomah County Courthouse. When the staff saw that criminal complaint, the, the staff quit. They had to restaff the office. <laughs> the staff probably wouldn't even know, understand it today, but they sure did then. This these so criminal. These criminal complaints work like magic, Joe. Anyway, what I was saying is you have the two courts. It's the court of public opinion, <clears throat> and it's informed by newspapers and brochures and flyers. You put them in the bars. You put them anywhere you can get people will talk. And then, then the next thing is, is the right to a trial by jury. The, the judge dare not master that, especially if you put it on the street already in paper. The rule is everybody gets everything. That's the rule of dis disseminating information in public. Everybody gets everything. I had put these things in the law library, in the Multnomah County Law Library, in the Multnomah County Courthouse. I was putting them in there, and a guy come up to me, and he says, Mr. Van Dyke, I see you putting these things in here. You keep putting these papers out. He says, we can't do this without losing our bar cards. <laughs> what do you mean by that? In other words, well, I went into a court case, in a Freeman case. I was to be a witness. I came through the door, and John J. John Kuganauer, John C. Kuganauer, the guy that was running the court case, saw me coming, and he knew who I was. As soon as he saw me down the, I was coming right straight down the aisle toward his bench in the bar. He said, "Sidebar." He called all the attorneys around him, and he says. If anybody puts Mr. Van Dyke on the bench, puts him in the witness stand, I'm taking away their bar card. <laughs> well, those judges have the power to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been through all kinds of situations like this. Uh, I could go on for hours and what has happened. Been arrest, been arrested, arrested from the stand, all kinds of stuff. But, What's uh, it? I'm sorry. Why would, anyway, they, why would they arrest I'm, you from the stand? 
What? Why would they arrest you from the stand? Well, I was called as an expert witness in commerce by uh, what was it, Peter? I'm trying to think of his name. Anyway, uh, he got to a point in his questioning of me on the stand. He said, "Now, Mr. Randyke, would you please describe money?" And Kuganauer was an axe man for the Federal Reserve, so he didn't want that to happen. So he ordered the jury out of the room, and he turned to me. And he says, Mr. Van Dyke, you give my, one more word of testimony in this case, and I'm going to have you arrested and put in jail. And this, this was a, and there was a, the whole, all the spectators stand was pretty well filled up. It was a lot of big people coming and watching it. And he said that right in front of the spectators. He says, Mr. Van Dyke, you give one more word of testimony in this court case, and I'm going to have you jailed, arrested and jailed. And then he called the jury back in. You may proceed, Mr. Van Dyke. Peter Robinson was out there. His hands were shaking. He didn't know what to do. And he said, Mr. Van Dyke, is there anything you can add to what you were saying before you were, the jury went out? And I said, yes, sir. And then she, the judges were to my right. The jury was to my left, and they were out on the stand. I held my, left hand, I held my right hand up, and I looked through my fingers at the jury. And I said, yes, there is something I have to say. But the judges said that if I give one more word of testimony in this courtroom, he's going to have me arrested and jailed, whereupon he had me arrested and jailed. The guards what? came. That's right. And the guards came across. One of them, the, there were two white men and a black man. The black man was built like an ox. And he grabbed a hold of my clothing so tight, his fingernails raked across the cloth, and I thought he was tearing my shirt off. He grabs me, and the other two takes me out of the room. Well, what? when I came down that aisle, my friend that got me there, Ed Wagner was his name, I passed all my, when I got to that point, I saw what I had. I passed all my personal items across to him as I walked down the aisle. So all I had was my wallet with my, I had a public wealth rebate note in my wallet. I, I had already leaned the judge and he hated that. I had a, a multi-billion dollar lien against a man at that time. The judge. There was a conflict of interest, in other words. And so, in my wallet, I had a copy of the note that I'd, uh, currency note that I'd put on the street against him. And uh, I had my uh, driver's license for positive identification. Well, as they, as this man's hauling me away to the jail, they get a hold of my wallet, which is the only thing that was left on me, purposely. And uh, one, one of the officers says, he said, is this all there is here? He says, yeah, that's all that's here. <laughs> so they took wow. me out of the room, and they took me in a hallway back behind the inside hallway and into a little jail cell that would have been about directly behind the judge. And uh, they strip-searched me under a camera and then took off. Well, about 20 minutes later, they came running in. They opened that cell up. They grabbed me. They took me down the hall and out a side door into the lobby, down, over to the elevator, down the floor to the first floor, uh, across the lobby there, and one took me, and took me outside, and, and one of them brushed me off. And he says, Mr. Van Dyke, we apologize for what happened in there. Uh, don't, don't, be, uh, don't go in the judge, don't go back in the courtroom. The judge doesn't like you. And he says, stay off the sidewalks around the courthouse. So I went across the street to a restaurant and waited till it was over. Now, that was one of my days in court. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. 
What so right anyway, I, the, the judge got himself in a pickle on that one because he and he had to write a statement that just justified why he had me removed from the bench, and I filed criminal charges against him. They got shown on the television in, in uh, Billings, Montana. Do you have copies of all of this stuff? I used to. Someone got lost when I was arrested this last time and was jailed. I oh, might have man. something of it. But anyway, I can probably come up with some. Other people have copies of some of this stuff I put they, out. They should, make, they should make a movie of your life. It would be a, it should yeah, sound like yeah. a mini-series. <laughs> sounds like a series is what it sounds like. It's way past the movie. Yeah, well, but what uh, was it that the judge actually you, got stopped on uh, the fact of just arresting you because you spoke up? Because that's what's happening today. People are being thrown in jail for asking questions. Well, he was going well, to reveal the biggest one. fraud there was. One voice. Go ahead, Harper. There's another thing the judges are doing. They'll call a roll. Is such and such here and so forth? And the person will say, I'm here. They'll just say, is such and such a person here? And the person will say, I'm, I'm here, judge. And they'll say, is such and such a person present in the courtroom? They'll say, I'm here. And they say, well, such and such a person doesn't appear to be here. Would you put it on the record that he hasn't appeared? And they just ignore the answers and, and the fact that he's, he's there. And, just go to, and they tell him to him. And then they call some marshal and come across and arrest the guy right out of the bar. Right there that's, in the courtroom. And removed from the courtroom. Yeah, that's they are, they're doing that now. Mm-hmm. We have a problem with our system. We have a major problem with our system. So anyway, what I've, I've been telling you basically is those are two of the courts, the court of public opinion and the court of trial by jury. Those are the two that the public has control over if, if they assume it. If you don't use it, you don't lose it. You know what I mean? And the third one is called an equity court or chancery court in England. Basically what it is, it's a non-jury court. And so is the summary court. That's the fourth court. The summary court is also a non-jury court. But the difference between the equity court and the summary court is that uh, in the summary court, in the equity court, you can have a, a real person. You can have two natural persons doing battle with each other. Or you can have a natural person in a corporation doing battle with each other. But the rule is that the judge has to, has to have the written consent of both parties in order to proceed. It's, it's basically a commercial court in that sense. But he has to have the written consent of both parties to proceed. And if you don't want to be there, you tell him, I don't want to have anything to do with your equity court because it's too easy to bribe a judge. You can't bribe a whole jury, but you can bribe a judge. And some of these judges are, that's what happens. So it's, especially if you're a patriot and they want to put you down, they will bribe the judge. So you can't, you can't rely on the judges. And you don't have to accept it. You don't have to sign any paper that gives that permission. You have the choice to sign it or not. The, if it's a corporation on the other side, they don't have to sign that. Uh, someone's breathing. Uh, could you uh, oh, not stop breathing, but put your uh, mic away from your mouth? Thank when you. I, when I get okay, in, sure. 
It's an interesting. Okay. It's an interesting. This happens on this uh, talk show. It happens in Charles' cases too. Yeah. This is, this noise is coming in. We don't even know from who it is. It's somebody creating a noise. I get on well, a subject. I, just... I get on a subject that's important, and it starts happening. Well, okay. Jerry just got on, and she's. Um, it's how she holds her phone. So, you okay, Jerry? Do you want me to push star six? Yeah, that way you. That? Yeah, star six, and that way you'll go mute on your phone. Okay, I'll do that. All right, sweetie. Okay. So anyway, the uh, thing with the corporation is this. All corporations are licensed by the states. And they can say that that's the states are licensed to and onward, upward. But since the corporation is licensed by the state, all the, all, all the judge has to have is the permission of the state to proceed in court. And it's pretty well understood that if a corporation is on one side of the battle, the states have already consented to it because they're on the dole for money from the federal government and if they don't go along with the, the game, they lose their dole. They don't get so the money. They're bribed. That's, totally. a, that's a form of bribery. Okay. The, the summary court is a, a court that only receives corporations or, or fictions. And since they have to be licensed by the state, the state gives consent on both sides. And so there's no consent problem in the summary courts. But you don't belong in a summary court, and if you don't want to be handled by a judge-only court, you don't belong in the equity court. You don't give them permission. That takes you down to the trial by jury court, which is now a people's court, uh, the government, government of the people, by the people, for the people, as long as the people know that they're in the government. <laughs> they have to be educated sometimes on that. So those are your four courts. Anyway, I heard that you're not... I heard that you're not allowed to talk about jury nullification when you're in the courtroom. The judge will slap you down quick. That's called that is called a motion. The court's motion and eliminate to limit testimony. And that's against the law too. And there's a Stanford Law Review article on that that's excellent. I don't happen to have the, the, the title of it right here, but uh, there is a Stanford Law Review article on that that shows that the motion and eliminate was designed to, to protect the common man on the street as a defendant, to keep him from being overburdened in the courtroom by, by a bunch of useless information from the federal government just trying to create confusion in the case. Well, they've turned that around. They've taken control of the motion eliminate, and they don't allow the defendant to protect himself. Can you repeat the phrase when I said they slapped down during notification? You said that's called what? To, a motion in lemonade. Lemonade is French. Motion lemonade. Motion in motion in lemonade. Spell it hard for so he gets how it's spelled. Well, the word motion M O T I O N in is I N and lemonade is L I. It's spelled like limine. L I M I N E. And, and if you have the correct pronunciation, there'd be a little mark over the E at the end. It's a foreign word. Okay. But what it is, it's a motion to limit, to limit testimony and the evidence. They did that to me in my trial. 
In fact, they told me in my motion to eliminate that I wouldn't be allowed to defend myself, in effect. And they gave me that before my trial. And then when they ran the trial on me in the court, the uh, prosecutor gave his half of the story, then it came to the halfway point, the judge stopped the trial and turned it over for a verdict to the jury. No defense. Wow. That's it. When you were in jail, did they have a very good law library there, or did you have access to a good library? I I was held in prison on that seven years and four months. Did you have access to a library when you were inside? Yes, I did, but it didn't do any good. They would come to my my locker and steal my appeal papers. Wow. I was a political... They want... What? They want you to stay, so you're a political prisoner. No, they didn't want me to publish my book, How to Create Currencies for Local Communities. Right. But somebody, uh, but somebody on the outside discovered that I had no. I had released a copyright, put it in the public domain. His name was uh, Jason Whitney. So he took the transcript of the case, a copy that he got of it. It was in circulation, and he found a copy of it, and he printed the thing faithfully. He didn't that try to put any add-ons in it, and he didn't subtract anything ma- major. He, he removed the two tables of contents, but they were that, that was all right. They were the table of contents were about seven pages each. There was it was two books. How to create currencies for local communities is two books in one cover. The first two thirds of it is a history of money and how money works, and the second section is on public wealth rebate notes. How to how to uh, turn a lien into currency on the street, and so. Uh, those were the two things in that book, and they did not want them published. They would create a conflict with a Federal Reserve note. And I was told in the closing statement in my case, even though I didn't get a, a, a role of defense, the junior prosecutor in that case said, admitted in, in the closing statements that the case before the court was ordered by the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Corporation. Board of Directors. What? Board of Directors ordered the case against you? Yes. Wow, you put notice to everybody. No, it's just one of those things. It's cumulative. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway, so, those are the four courts. And a, a court, if you use a motion in court... Well, anyway, I, I'm going to go through this. this I won't, I can stretch in all different directions on this. So what I'm going to do is stop at this point on this and say, you go to court with two briefcases. One has got the events, the other has got the comments, and you can marry them. That's the purpose of the court case, to prove by your opinions and by your case, uh, the citations that you have of law applied to your events that you have a right to win the battle. That's basically what a court case is. Okay, so let's say you put your your biography together. The next thing that's important is to protect your capacity to work your case. You have to protect your capacity to work your case. That is what the primary purpose of a commercial affidavit notice of interest is for. 
commercial affidavit, notice of interest says, I have an interest in winning my case. And that's the document that uh, Wonder, Wonder Ann was reading, okay? That document is put in place to guarantee that you have a chance to put together your commercial arguments and exhaust your remedies in commerce. And then they have to honor it, and if they don't, it stops the case. I don't use case law. I haven't used case law for the 43 years I've been in the business. Don't need it. In fact, all you need is 11, 11 uh, titles out of the United States Code to run everything. So anyway, I uh, where out I get to where I am now. <laughs> oh, that was bringing my. I was, talking, I was talking about I was talking about the notice of interest. Right. The notice of interest is a process that is Jewish commercial law. I learned it from a man who learned it from the Jews. It was basically a trade secret, or has been. It's ceasing to be that. But it, uh, judges know about it. The title insurance companies know about it. The banks know about it. The big shots know about it. Especially if it's a Jewish organization, they know about it. It's a guarantee that they can't move forward for 21 days until all you you've had 21 days or three three weeks Jewish. Everything's three is Jewish. Three days, three weeks, three months, three years. A thing done three times is done forever. So they, you have the three-week the three week pause that puts the brakes on. Somebody can be trying to sell your house. You put a notice of interest against it, and as soon as that notice of interest is against the sale, the sale stops, and it's held up for three weeks automatically. And they don't dare deny it. I've had people go in and they were being given the bums rush. They will use that motion, that uh, notice of interest, and uh, they say, oh, oh, a notice of interest. And they say, oh, yes, yes, we'll honor that. And that gives you a three-week continuance. That's how you get a three-week continuance, anytime you need it. But you just have to know how to do that document, you see. It's a very inexpensive process, but it's very effective. But the notice of interest is used there to guarantee you a three-week window to create all your affidavits. And if they don't answer your affidavits, that stops the case. Now, there is a piece of case law you want to know just to know that this has been done. That's Mellow Rich Builders versus San Bernardino County, California. Mellow Rich is M-E-L-O-R-I-C-H, Builders. It was a construction company, apparently. And there was a battle between the construction company, construction company and the county, apparently, for pay a bill. Well, he went into court and they hadn't answered his affidavit, and the judge says, "Well, you have to answer the affidavit, or we can't proceed in this court case." So that that was the way that was tied in. And if you look up that case site, it'll give you 20 other references of the same thing, easily about 20 references. So anyway. The notice of interest has a purpose of putting the brakes on in order to get it. That's called grace. You see, commerce is a very strict thing, extremely strict. People are not built that way. People's minds are not perfect like the machinery of commerce. Commerce is based on natural law. There are no free sandwiches, and there's no liberty to do anything. It either is or it ain't. And so the situation is, you're dealing with human beings that have minds that don't work like a snap, especially in foreign territory. They have to have the time to gather their thoughts. That's called grace. 
And so the purpose of the notice of interest is to guarantee grace so that the processes you're going to be run through in the court aren't too severe. That's what its purpose is. That's why they have to grant it. Otherwise, it would be an unreasonable process, and it would be technically in violation of the due process of law because the person isn't ready to proceed. Now, if you take into the court a motion, motions and petitions are parliamentary procedure. They are not court processes. They are parliamentary procedure. Robert's Rules of Motion. So you put in a motion into the court, and the judge can throw it in the wastebasket because there's no liability for him to do it. It's not a commercial process. However, if you, give, you put a petition in, they're asking somebody to do something or asking somebody for money or something like that, a petition when you ask for something and you have a right to ask for it, you're the debt collector, you're the claimant, and they're the debtor. You put in a petition, the judge doesn't want to handle that because it's a commercial instrument. If he handles a commercial instrument in the court, he's taking a chance on the person in front of him knowing it's commercial and taking him to the, to the rug with it, taking him to the mat. Because he has to have a, he has to have a bond in order to handle a petition. Believe it or not, that's one thing he has to be bonded on. It's not a domestic element. That's why you see it in the Constitution. <clears throat> Right of the people to, 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 uh, to peaceably assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the only place you see the word petition used because it's a commercial instrument. Well, what the judge will do, he'll take that petition, he'll hand that petition over to the opposing lawyer and let him take the load. Now it's off his shoulders. So the judge will throw away a motion and reroute a petition. Mm-hmm. Now the now the now the attorney dumps the petition into the petitions dumps the petition into the attorney's hands. Now that attorney's got to carry the load commercially. But you see, the public isn't informed of the fact that commerce rules. They don't have to take this crap off of these public officials. If a police officer shows you his badge, you say, "Where's the where's the statement on the badge? This badge that you just produced. Where's your?" Bonding statement. That's the way it is. So you're saying natural law is the highest law because it's commercial law? Natural law is superior. Our bodies are built on natural law. No no court could even know what to to fix. (laughs) Natural natural law. law is the highest law because it represents commercial law. No, no. Commercial law is the highest of the human laws because it represents nature. Nature calls all the shots. It's creator. It is manufacturer. Everything the man does is provided, and everything man has is provided by nature. I'm talking about biological nature. All we do is imitate nature. We don't create anything new. We're imitators. We figure out how to use nature to our advantage, but we're still imitating nature, everything we do. Everything in nature is an exchange of matter or energy. That's all it is. But when it comes down to nature, that's the universe. The entire entire court system then is a masquerade, and it's camouflage, disguising the fact that commercial law is really the underpinnings of superstructure of all law and it's being able to see clearly through all the nonsense 
and trickery to realize you want to get to commercial law because that is a representative of natural law, the highest form of law. Am I assessing that correctly? That's exactly right. Oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) This is going to be enjoyable. Well, you see, it's not as bad as it seemed to be. It isn't. (laughs) (laughs) And man embodies the highest form of law because he is tied to the natural world and all all of these deceptions are designed to to derail the fact that man is the highest form of law because he embodies the the understanding of commerce which reflects the law of nature. Oh, this is wonderful. This is absolutely wonderful. You see, what the courtroom is is a racket. It's based on one fundamental principle. Where there's confusion, there's profit, and the more confusion, the more profit. That's the old joke that what do you have when you have one lawyer in town? Too little work. What do you have when you have two lawyers in town? Too much work. That's the old joke. I, I didn't hear it. Didn't come across. What me. do you have? What do you have when you have one lawyer in town? You have too little work. What do you have when you have two lawyers in town? Too much work. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of a story my stepfather told me. My stepfather told me this story uh, about two farmers that were in Fort Jones, California. It's a real story. They each had a, they were having a conflict with each other, and uh, they each hired a lawyer, an attorney. And uh, anyway, the attorneys were sitting on their hind end, not doing anything. So one of the farmers got nervous. He wanted to see some action, so he went to his attorney. And he said. Uh, we've got to get this thing going. And so we laid it on him real thick, and the, the attorney said, okay, we'll do it. We'll get it started. I'll write a letter to the other lawyer. We'll make sure we get this thing started. And so he writes this letter and hands it to him. It's sealed. And this farmer takes his letter. He's going to give it to the other attorney to get the case going. And halfway there, about on the way to there, he gets curious about what's in that letter, so he opens it up. And a very simple statement in there. Here's two fine ducks. You pluck one and I'll pluck the other. <laughs> and my father said he, my father said you never saw two farmers get their heads together and solve their problems so quickly. <laughs> that is yeah. so pure. That is so clean. <laughs> yeah. It summarizes it in a nutshell. Absolutely. And so now you understand it's a shell game. Correct. Nutshell, yeah, nutshell. You've got to be nuts to play that shell game. Nutshell, yeah. yeah. All in a nutshell. Yeah, you slide a, a nutshell around on a table with a P under it, and you've got to keep track of which nutshell has the P under it. Right. <laughs> that can, and remember, way back in <clears throat> the 40s movies, that was shown a lot in the films. Yeah. I, and, I, and you don't see it at all anymore. But I use it in reference sometimes. It's a shell game. Yeah. They're using the shell game. Where's the P? That's right. So, wow. So this gives you a little bit of a picture. People are better, better equipped to fight this than they realize. Anyway, 
So you have a second. The first thing is in a good biography of what's going on. You want to write it up and keep track of it. The second thing is you want to know the power of the notice of interest to be able to put the brakes on when things are going too fast for you. That controls the speed of the action that's going on. The third thing you have to know is the affidavit. And the affidavit I'm referring to is the criminal affidavit. When somebody does something wrong to you, you immediately file against it as a crime. And it only when you do it as soon as you can, it doesn't get more complicated. If you let it ride and go on and on and on, before long you're four or five criminal complaints behind. A case stops at its first defect. As soon as you see a defect in the case, you note, note that, that's where the case stops. That's why you see in the courtrooms, they, the attorneys have their pile of paperwork, and you'll see a, a, a bridging two bars of metal to come over the top and through two holes. You, you know what I'm talking about? Their no. Clipboard, their clipboards are, are a stack. The reason they do that is very simple. They don't want you to go down into the stack anymore. Because that's where the mistakes have been made. So that's not the way you handle a case is with one of those clipboards. They do it because the, the basic rule is you, they're not supposed to peel any deeper than a couple pages. Because they make mistakes continuously. Right. And they don't want you delving into the rest of it. The opposite of that is to have ring books, have all your stuff in ring books tabulated. I had one, one client that would do, was really good at that. He had a standard forms so that consisted of a six and three quarter inch sheet, a three, six and three quarter inch ta- table. The first row, column in the table was three quarters of an inch wide, and the remaining six inches was split into two three inch columns. The first column was for the date, the second column was a statement of the event, and the third column was the comments. So he had date, event, comment. The whole book was done that way did his biography that way, and he had it all indexed with numbers. And then he had a scroll that he made on a fish paper, 16-inch wide fish paper, had a great big long table, working double working table, two eight and a half by 11, eight, I don't know, two eight by, uh, what do you call it? four, four by eight sheets of plywood, two of them stacked end to end, and he covered them with a piece of sheet metal. He worked for Trojan Nuclear Plant, was able to get a sheet metal cover for his table, sloping table, we would put a scroll paper out, the full length of 16 feet, and he had it, uh, parallel lines top and bottom, and then he had boxes, three boxes in a stack, and then the next column, three more boxes, and so forth. Each box had a number in the corner, which was the tab number in his ring books, and the next thing to that was a qu- quick statement of what happened, uh, and so forth, all the way through his scroll. If he took his hands off the paper on the scroll, tab, uh, it was released, the two ends would roll up so he'd have a, a double roll of scroll. If he wanted to find something, he'd lay the scroll on a, on a tabletop, move his hand to the right and follow it with the left and it would cause the scroll to roll in that direction or go, go the other way. And he could scan his whole case just by going up and down on that scroll. When he'd find the thing, the events that happened, because he'd have the, t- the tab and then across the top would be the date, and then, then the box itself would have a short statement of what was go- what happened that time. And he could locate it. He could find uh, immediately the box that indicated that particular event. He'd look at the number up in the corner. That was his tab number. He'd open up his three. He had three ring books, three three ring notebooks. The one had his events. The next one had his documents. 
And the next thing they had is document analysis. He had a document analysis sheet. And all he had to know is a certain event. He'd find it instantly. He'd go to the tab, open all three ring notebooks of it, and he had everything he needed to know, the event, the, the document, and the, and the document analysis. What do you call and, that whole process? That's just a method of handling paperwork in the courtroom if you really want to do it. Just a paper handling process. And you can imagine the the other side where you've got a man has does this, and on the opposite side, let's say it's a man that's trying to, need to conduct the suit, be the plaintiff, the moving party. He's got an attorney. His attorney's got a little pile of papers on the table. This other guy comes in. He's got it all in three ring notebooks. He'd bring them in by box loads. He could he had them extended from ring book to ring book. And he could just whang. He could have exactly what was necessary. And you can imagine the guy that's bringing the suit. He's got an attorney that is nowhere near prepared that much. He's jabbing him with his elbows and looking over at the other guy. Stephens said, as much as to say, why the hell aren't you organized that good? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine then that they have a software that could duplicate that process. And you can manage that entire scenario probably on a laptop, I would imagine. But the, it's more impressive to oh, have the man, the man that did stuff. that. What? It's more impressive to have those props. That's why I did exactly what I didn't have it organized like you just suggested. Well, that, I just came in with mine. Well, you, I don't know many people that would have it organized like that, but that man did it. He and his wife were in a court case in uh, I was in uh, wasn't yeah Kelso Washington I guess it was and Kelso Washington he was in court one day in court and uh, they violated him 18 times two of them were putting him into uh, taking him out of the court for contempt of court twice he had 18 charges against them for what what they did and all in all the communists the the whole totem pole of people, you know, the whole stack of people who were involved in that. It had uh, tw- 27 defendants. We had 18 criminal complaints and 27 defendants, I think that's what it was. Wow. And uh, when he, that, that was the one that did this board I'm telling you about. He did a 20th Century Fox production of it. But uh, he, uh, you know, so Washington... Anyway, it racked up something like 250. For, he had 250 criminal complaint processes racked, racked up, one for each defendant for each count. It was a, quite a pile. He did a lot of criminal complaints. And uh, anyway, he went into the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, Tacoma, Washington with it. He wanted to get his, his complaints filed. And he took in, uh, as I recall, it was 18 witnesses. And uh, there was a little office, and they filled the office up. And uh, the the attorney, uh, the prosecuting attorney that was behind the t- counter, he was overloaded. You can see that. And he brought in his complaints to be stamped in. He had five box loads of complaints. Oh, my Lord. Five box loads. And... Uh, the prosecuting attorney didn't want to have anything to do with it. I, and I was standing in the back of the room, and I said, 
Okay, let's have three of you come with me down to the lobby. We're going to call it. Uh, he doesn't want to stamp these in. Uh, three of you come down. We're going to call the TV stations to come in and do a shot on this thing. And three of them came out of the out of the crowd, and we went, left the room. And as we were leaving the room, I heard the prosecuting attorney say, "Well, Mr. Carter, his, his name was Jerry Carter." I said, "Mr. Carter, what, what what would you like me to do for you?" Uh. <laughs> I said, and we went down. There was no bluff to it. We started. I had the people down there and got them set up. They called in the TV stations to come in and take a photo of the thing, uh, pictures of it, camera work. And I went on upstairs to see how things were doing. Well, all these all these witnesses were milling around in the hall. I thought, what's going on here? And I went into the office. The prosecuting attorney was standing beneath the clock on the wall on the outside of, outside the counter. Jerry Carter was stamping using the prosecuting attorney's stamp. One man was taking the complaints out of the box, putting them in front of Carter, and the other one was sweeping them up and putting them back into the box. They went through all of those. They stamped it, and, used it, and the prosecutor was looking up at the clock. I thought, oh, I just I couldn't believe this was happening. Tacoma, Washington is only a 30-minute drive from Seattle. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, he doesn't have a guard on duty today. He has no officers to protect him. He's watching the clock because he's called Seattle, and they've got somebody coming in the car. They got all those things stamped in before the, anybody arrived, and he went down. He had the audacity to go down the hall to the magistrate's office, and have the magistrate. There were 18 independent complaints. He wanted five copies written in. So he took it to the magistrate judge, and they stayed there until those 90 copies were all hand signed in by that U.S. magistrate. Then they left the building. And the and the. Whatever was coming from Seattle didn't get there on time. So Jerry pulled that one off. He was, he was one of the best that I ever had to work this process. Nobody's ever topped that one. What was Did, his name? Jerry what? Jerry what? Jerry Carter. Jerry, Jerry Carter. Carter. And uh, uh, the total value of those counts: 10,609 counts. $106,090,000 was the amount of that. And uh, I could tell you more about it, but I think I'll just leave it at that right now. Uh, at one point, uh, Jerry was having problems. <coughs> Jerry was having problems with the U.S. government Internal Revenue Service, and uh, they 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 agreed to drop the Internal Revenue Service case if he would drop the hundred six million ninety thousand dollars against the governors. Of the state of Washington and all the others. And he also had, and part and part of that deal was also that he disassociated with me and never went the same route again. He had to quit. His wife gave him quite a bit of trouble over that too. Oh boy. So I mean, there's there's problems everywhere you go. The top problems don't end at the court; they end up sometimes affecting other aspects of your life, marriages and things like that. Not everybody can handle the tension. You understand? Detention. You said detention. 
Not everybody can withstand the tension of the activity. Oh, the tension. Yeah. Oh, yeah, tension. And wives, uh, wives are the ones they try to pick on. That's one of their methods of getting at the weaknesses of the man. They they kind of what we used to call the bum rush, right? That's right. Yeah. So you see, these are. The, but the thing is, the, the first process is the is the biography. The second process is a notice of interest, just to gain, gain stability to do what you have to do. Then comes the actual moving processes, which is a criminal complaint process which is a very simple process. When you get skilled at that, you can do a criminal complaint in 15 minutes. The whole thing, from start to finish. But you have to be real skilled to do it that way. I mean, otherwise it might take a half hour. <laughs> but it, Bio, uh, notice of interest, criminal, and keep going. Bio, criminal, notice of interest, the criminal, criminal. The criminal complaint is what I call the affidavit. It's the primary affidavit in the sequence that I use. Is a criminal complaint, and the second step is the lien, because you get a, a fair market value off the criminal complaint of what it's worth in a lien, taken from their own codes, the United States codes, Title 18, 241, and 242. They give you the dollar values in the 1975 version, and that's what I use as the 1975 version of those codes, because they still have the monetary values listed in them. Those codes are 42. What did you say? 42 and 43. Title 18, Section 241 and 242. 241 says it's $1,000 for each violation at a loan act. 242 is for the loan act. 241 is for conspiracy. If two or more people commit the act, that's $10,000 a box. So you do the criminal complaint by checking the boxes, count the boxes. That tells you the fair market value. You put that at the end of the complaint, and that's the value you use on the next step, which is the lien. That sets your fair market value for your lien. They can't say it's nebulous because it's the numbers taken from their own statutes. They're stuck with it. And this is how you created the uh, the, uh, the the Commonwealth uh, rebate note uh, for the people well, with what the happens, $63 billion? What happens is the lien process puts, makes you the prosecutor because it's the, the attorneys, the prosecuting attorneys, will not prosecute their own people. So you file criminal. I, I only use this process against public officials, criminal criminal behavior of public officials, and so uh, it's standard that way. The box form is standardized for that purpose. It makes it very simple to do this. It's a matter of just uh, putting a paragraph in to say what's done wrong, and. Uh, Going through, checking the boxes, the number of times they violate the Constitution is the number of charges. And then 240, 241, Title 18, 241, is $10,000 per box. Multiply at $10,000, put four zeros at the end of the count of the number of boxes checked. That gives you your dollar value of your process. And you become when they uh, act, activate it with selective prosecution, which means they don't prosecute, you're entitled in commercial law. You always have a remedy, and so you choose your remedy. And you choose your remedy to be a lien. Then that dollar value becomes the commercial value of your lien. And this is where the uh, public wealth rebate notice uh, or, or, or or currency 
that you have that you have arrived at that sixty three billion? Is that because you've completed all these processes okay, and the injury I'll, caused I'll, you? I'll explain how that one went, but I'm just telling you basically. This gives you your this gives you your fair market value. So they can't see your figures are nebulous, plucked out of thin air. You know what I mean? Yes. Okay. So anyway, you have this, and so you become the prosecutor for three months, ninety days. They have to answer every one of those boxes by affidavit in writing, and if they don't, they lose. And it goes into default, and when it goes into default, it becomes a negotiable instrument at that price. Okay, and since it's a negotiable interest at that price, the next thing is your default notice. Because you see, we we did the biography, we did the notice of interest, we did the criminal complaint, did the lien, and now the lien has come to fruition because they, they never argue it. They think they can walk away from it. They can't. It becomes a negotiable in, instrument. Well, then the next thing is you have to put a default notice on the, on the street to complete the process. The default notice you put on the street is any proof that there's an obligation, which in this case became a currency process. So I'm, 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 I filed the criminal complaint as a public, as a public proxy plaintiff, which means it's not filed in my behalf; it was filed in behalf of somebody else. That makes it a public instrument and a public process, and the proceeds from it is public money, not my money. And on the, on the in, input of the, of the lien process, it says I'm a public escrow proxy. An escrow is an account that holds the money until it can be properly distributed. And so I, I become a public escrow proxy, which means I become a banker for the money for the public. And so as soon as it goes into default, I have a bank with that amount of money in, in an account. Now, in order to make the process complete, I have to put the money on the street. Otherwise, there'll be no proof that there was a process completed. Now, I can put it on in a check form, or I can put it out in currency form. Either way, I have had done both. The first five years after I did this against uh, Kuganauer up there in CR 96-500C case, the first five years, I put about $6 billion worth of currency on the street in check form. And then in 2001, I, uh, December, right on the Pearl Harbor attack date, I issued my first currency in that period of time. And I put $138,000 worth of currency on the street in denominations of 1, 3, 7, 12, 23, 71, and 230. All of those are Jewish, numer- <clears throat> All of those are Jewish numerology numbers. I'm commemorating the Jewish commercial system with those. And by and I'm not Jewish, by the way. I, <laughs> I was just going to ask you. <laughs> I, I just respect the system. I, I have to respect the system. It's worked for thousands of years. It's a great system, but it's not abused. And so anyway, I, I put the currencies on the street. Now, when you do a currency... You look at a $5 bill, you got Lincoln on the front and the Lincoln Memorial on the back. All your d- d- money information is on the front, really, because all you got on the back is five, the number five and four corners and a building. Well, they have to put something on the back side. They fill it up with more engraving. It makes it harder to counterfeit. So the back side has nothing. 
That's what pretty much what the backing is. Is a Federal Reserve note. It's nothing. And so when you put a default on the street, you put a currency on the street, but your currency has to be complete. You have your money values and your issue issue numbers and all that fancy work of the numbering and locating and all of that kind of stuff. But on the back side of a note that you do put out this way, you have to put the story of how that money was generated. That's what the back side of the note is for, is to, is to show why, since this public official broke the law, why some money should go from that public official or, or the government that employed him and go back to the public because the job wasn't done right. That's what the whole purpose of it is. And so you tell the story on the back side of the note, what the public official did wrong, how much money it racked up, and uh, and the, the money is available for the public. So you and get that's my, the back end. That's, that's the back, the back end. That's right. And since the Federal Reserve note, Federal Reserve Corporation uh, concealed the, all the tax money of the United States taxpayers since 1933, all that money is still available for the public to use to back their own new, new series of notes. And John F. Kennedy discovered that fact, and he tried to get it going, Executive Order 11110. And uh, he started printing the Red Seal Note. The Red Seal Note represents uh, human labor. The Red Seal Note, the United States Note, was a labor note. And he realized that all the labor went to pay the taxes, and this, all that money was still available. And so he was putting out a Red Seal Note backed by the United States Labor since 1933, and it was going to be a very powerful note in competition with the Federal Reserve notes, so they had him killed. Simple story. Well, this so, is just... So a public, wealth, a public wealth rebate note is actually a public wealth tax rebate note, and so it's a red seal note, and it's, it would be supported by John F. Kennedy's Executive Order 11110. And it would be backed by all the tax money since 1933, all the labor tax money. So and that money was worth a whole lot more back then than it is now, so that's very valuable. Yeah. Well, you see, what happened was in the CR-92-500 C case, there were eight defendants, and they were malprocessed. They Can were you not- give that number again? Can you give that number again a little slower when you... CR9, it's a Seattle, Washington, U.S. District Court case number. It's CR 96-500C. It's a militia case. Eight people were taken in a militia case raid. One of them was playing with sparklers. It was uh, later in July. They were having a little meeting, and one, there were eight men and two women involved in it, and the two wives of the men that were there. And uh, there was one man, a full-grown adult, that was mentally retarded. He was playing with sparklers. A couple other guys were messing around building pipe bombs, pipe bombs of all craziness. They're dangerous to build. And uh, anyway, they were having a little party, and in comes the United States government raid right over the border of Washington State into Washington, usurping the right of the governor to control the unorganized militia of Washington. And all kinds of things this leads into. Well, anyway, they were arrested, found out one of them has, and they, it was advertised as eight, this is a Seattle eight or whatever they called it, found out one of them wasn't going to be prosecu- prosecutable because he was playing with sparklers instead of other kinds of 
dangerous weapons. <laughs> you can't get your fingers burned if you don't handle, handle sparklers well. Anyway, uh, so they substituted a friend of mine who was a lecturer on constitutional law. They put him in the place of the guy they removed from it so that he still had eight people. They didn't have to change the numbers in the, in the stories. What's the name of your friend? Tracy Brown. Also, he had, a, he had his, his name that he used was an AKA for his lectures, Bill Smith. He liked a, a simple name. His name was Tracy Brown. Okay. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I filed my papers for Tracy. I filed a criminal complaint in behalf of Tracy, and that's what started the case. Now, they never properly arraigned him. In fact, what the judge said in the first day of the trial, the jury was out, but the, the spectators were there, and there's witnessed and written up on this one. He said, out there are the First Amendment counts. And he was pointing out the window. Out there are the First Amendment counts. But he said, in this courtroom, the First Amendment doesn't count, and neither does the, the Second or Ninth Amendments. Well, the reason he said that was when they were arrested and brought to court, they they were all given public defenders. All eight of them were given public defenders. And the eight of the public defenders chose amongst themselves one person as the representative for the, all eight of them. His name was David Zuckerman. And he wrote a classic brief on the Second and Ninth Amendments to the Constitution. How do you spell, how do you spell that last thing? Zuckerman? Zuckerman. Z-U-C-K. Z Z-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. I've got a copy of that brief. It's a very interesting brief. Nine pages on the on the Second Amendment and three pages on the Ninth Amendment. It was a classic brief, and he did that. Well, the judge did not want the Second and Ninth Amendments brought in because it would break what the federal government was trying to do. So when it came into the courtroom and the jury was still out, the judge made the comment, pointed out the window, out there the First Amendment accounts. But he says, in here, the First Amendment doesn't count, and neither do the Second and Ninth Amendments count. So what he did was he overruled the use of that 12-page brief of Mr. David Zuckerman. That is called a, a court's motion in limine, limiting testimony. The judge wow. literally defect, defected against the, the jury ever hearing the truth. Well, that means the case was dying. It died right there. So everybody that was arrested was denied their, their due process public defender, which means that even the arraignment was not legitimate. But when an arraignment is not legitimate, there is no arraignment. It's three, they, the government has three days to do it right. That's what an arraignment. It's three days, that's Jewish. The, 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 the timing on an arraignment is according to the Jewish law. Three days. There's two reasons why the Jews have a three-day rating on that. One is known, the other is understood by men. The first is that if a man has a business and he's taken away from his business for three days, people quit coming to the door for doing their business. So if a man is held more than three days in the court, he's supposed that it's interfering with his making of money. It interferes with his occupation. At that point, after three days, the government has to turn the person loose back on the street on their own personal recognizance. They can't detain them. The other reason is a human one. 
If the man is married, he's normal sex life. His cycle is three days. The natural sex life, sex, sex cycle for a human male is three days. And you can look up a lot of statistics and it all comes back to that. If a man has sex once with his wife a week, he has to fill the gap in between with masturbation or something like that. And if he doesn't take care of his body, he'll get injured because the body has to have the cleansing process there just the same as it does the bladder or the uh, uh, colon. The man has to be able to shit, he's got to be able to piss, and he's got to be able to ejaculate. And if he doesn't, he can get hurt. There's one of the reasons that you've got prostate problems in this country. The prostate can get poisoned if the seminal vesicle gets poisoned. Because you have a little respect for me having those phone calls start at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know? I can't, didn't hear that. What, yes, what did you, you got it. I'm on mute, so I don't know who's saying that. Please, well, if you have no, people... Yeah, anyway, first, of all, three, first of all, three days occupation and uh, the Three power, and otherwise, and the other three days is alienation of consortium. What the heck does that mean? Alienation of consortium. Consortium, look it up, conjugal relationship, and consortium in the Bible. And the uh, Black's Law Dictionary, it gives you a detailed definition of what constitutes commercial law connected with marriage. The difference between prostitution and marriage in the system of commerce is merely the terms and the time length of the contract. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's a very fine line in the timing of marriage and prostitution. Oh, my goodness, that's a very big statement. Well, I had a person come to me that is, he had given his, granted his wife a divorce. And then after the divorce was granted, she tried to take him for everything he had, hired an attorney and all that, came to me and told me what the situation was. I said, well, look it up in Black's Law Dictionary. Here's marriage, here's consortium, here's conjugal relationship. So you can see what the situation is. She's breaking the contract. She says, well, what do I do about it? I say, you go back in and you dissolve your divorce and you're married again. Wow. And that did it. Blew away the other attorney and blew away even, the judge. Even though, even though she protests, she would have had to protest that because then she would lose her benefits of having uh, gotten Marriage. everything from him. Marriage is a commercial relationship. Everybody's got to come work with a contract. Oh. She violated the contract. He'd given her 50% and given her freedom to go, and she wanted to abuse it. She broke the contract. She broke the divorce contract. There's a marriage contract and there's a divorce contract. She violated the divorce contract. So he took it right back into court and withdrew the divorce and she was married again. Holy smokes. I'm sure she hated that. Well, I don't know what it did from then on. It didn't get much feedback. That's the trouble with most of this stuff. You help somebody with it and they walk off and they get their satisfaction. They go and they never, you never hear from them again. That is absolutely terrible. That should be criminal because you have to follow up on the results of your efforts so you can understand how it played out to its finality. Yeah, well, one guy came to me, wanted advice. I gave him all the advice I could, and I didn't even charge him for it. Well, because I didn't charge him, he didn't think it was worth anything, I guess. And he disappeared and went out and got himself an attorney. And then his attorney took him to cleaners. He came back to me and he was giving him $4,000. 
And he came back to me and he said, I, I, he couldn't, wouldn't do the job for me. And I said, well, what would you pay him, 4000 I said, well, you gave him $4,000 that I should have had. And uh, I didn't put it quite that way, but I said, well, you gave him $4,000 that I should have been able to get. And on top of that, you financed my enemy. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now you run into lots. I've been at this 43 years, and I've seen quite a different different this thing from different angles. And, Sometimes uh, you could almost think that the people deserve the system that they have because it almost appears as that at a basic human level, it almost appears as though people are corrupt, so they develop a corrupt system. Tell us what a, you're saying. I had a uh, next door to me here is a martial artist, and I went one day to him bellyaching about the criminal behavior of our uh, judges in the courts. And he says, that's not the problem. He says, the people won't do anything about it. They're, they're, they're just as guilty, in other words. And Einstein, and Einstein put it a different way. Einstein said, the world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people that are evil, but because of the good people that won't do anything about it. That's a very big one. That, that's so correct, because that is exactly why we're in this problem. Yeah. We are the ones that we are guilty. <clears throat> we figure, we figure that if it, doesn't, if it doesn't affect us personally, we don't have to take action. So it's the other guy's problem. But what affects one person affects us all. Evil anywhere unchecked is evil everywhere unchecked. And the That's fact right. that people don't stand up to defend other people because it's not happening to them personally, then the entire system degrades because people are not fighting everybody's battles. Are you your brother's keeper? Hell yes. And remember, uh, your brothers, and remember this, the Brothers Keeper, the Brothers Keeper statute of federal law is Title 42, Section 1986. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Title 42, Section wow. 1986. <laughs> and, the, and the thing that says that you must file to correct the problem is Title 18, Section 4. And you said earlier, you said, how did you say that? Um, that any time you witness a crime, you are compelled and you are um, um, uh, insisted upon filing charges whenever you witness a crime. Otherwise, like if you witness a crime in the, clerk, in the county clerk house that uh, something is being processed in, in a, inappropriately, in a, improperly, then you watch that happen and you don't take action. Now you are part of the criminal case. You have committed a crime by not addressing a crime. That's right. That's, that's, that's Title 18, Section 3. Oh, I gotta write that one down too. Ooh, I'm gonna become a wizard at this. <laughs> That's it's interesting you brought this up because in the Second World War, with what um, Hitler was saying, there was a, a pastor, and I'm, I want to say Schuler was his name, and he said they came for the laborers, and it wasn't affecting me. Exactly. Uh, they came in for uh, this next section, this next section, and this next section, and then they came for me. And he ended and, up in a concentration camp. And he said, by the time they came to me, there was nobody left to stand up for me. Exactly. That is what it's all about. That is how we got here. That is exactly the etymology. Uh, Harper, right. can you please tell me again? You said that was Title 18, Section 3. Is that is that of the U.S. Code? That, yeah, that's complicity by by inaction. 
is one way of doing it. Complicity and that's by Title 18, Title 18, 18 is, Section 3. Uh-huh. Okay, and that, is that? And, and I, didn't, didn't I give you the full list of 11? Yes, those are two weeks ago, and I got it all written down. Okay, okay. they were on the first two uh, uh, Fridays that we had you, Hartford. And Hartford, it's 11.30 our time, so uh, it's almost time to finish. Right. And I, I'm so excited what you've given us. Is this a good place to stop? Sure, pick it up next okay. week. And I'd yeah, like I wish, to I talk. Wish we, to, I wish we could go on for another twenty hours straight. I know. <laughs> I'm with you, Abraham, and I hope everybody else on here has been <laughs> able to uh, absorb some of this. So, if any any time this occurs to you, you have more uh, agility to prevent the crimes that are coming along, and this is very important. Um, I am, um, for uh, for your sake, uh, Hartford, I'd like to talk to you later as to my next step so that I do oh, sure. get it, sure. uh, because you're, you're valuable to me and, I, and you're so valuable to our listeners because they wouldn't have heard this in the succinctness and preciseness that you're doing it for us, and that's such a jewel. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, boy. We all do. We all do. In fact, I appreciate Thank it so you. much. I want to bring a sleeping bag and move in. Yes. <laughs> Put your tent up on the front uh, lawn, huh? You'll never be, never be able to get rid of me. <laughs> oh, Abraham, I have to tell you, when I, I called um, Hartford after we left the courthouse and were in the car, and I was so excited, I said, Hartford, we got it! Oh, we got it! Oh, and I'm, I was on the phone, and and uh, this little feminine voice said, "I'm not Hartford, but I'm really glad you got what you wanted." <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! That's hilarious. <laughs> but there's something I, I don't I don't want to put a damper on this, but you there's something you always got to remember: the people you're dealing with are quite. Proficient at being not nice people. Correct. And uh, although although you are happy about the gains you've made, they just you can hear them grinding their tools a little bit sharper. That's exactly right. So don't 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 lose your your composure over this thing. I was just listening last night to uh, the I think it was Dan Peterson. Uh, about the uh, Freeman case, when they caught up with the guy, the FBI held his house with bullets. When he was, he didn't get killed. He was still alive. They went in there, chopped off his hands, chopped off his feet, tortured him, and burned him, and released the photos. I guess to put, you know, uh, uh, the NK Ultra mind control to make everybody scared. And that, that is like you're talking about a vicious species. That's not even a human species. That's a vicious species we're up against. That's a psychopath. I try to tell people we're all born into this world as animals, but we have to learn to become human beings, and some of them never make it. That's right. <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to quit. Uh, okay. Uh, because there's a lot of stuff going on out in the yard. I think the tree people are back, and it's going to. We had Duke, the power energy company, come through and butcher the trees, and now they have to grind them into sawdust so oh, it might get noisy here 
So let us do our ho-ho-pono-pono uh, offer. You've been very quiet. Would you like to lead us in our ho-ho-pono-pono? Sure. Okay, baby. <laughs> I've just been in, enjoying this ride. Um, it is a ride. <laughs> and so grateful to the information you're you're helping us with, Harvard. It's just unbelievable. <clears throat> well, no, it's believable. You're finally giving us believable stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing. About an, um, about, about an unbelievable situation. Believable stuff about an unbelievable situation. Great. Well said, Abraham. It's unbelievable how yeah. they do this. But anyway, thank you. Um. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you. I love you. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Someone else can take it up. Donnie, do you want to take it up? You may be on mute. More for the sewing circle. No, this is about for you. And it's for your forgiving you. It has nothing to do with the sewing circle. It has to do with your (laughs) actual appreciation of who you are. (laughs) We've we've always been taught to forgive everybody else, but we've never been taught to forgive ourselves. And that's where, I mean, you can't forgive somebody else if you can't forgive yourself. Can I bring something up into this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It said that there were there's ten commandments under Moses, and Jesus mm-hmm. said there were two commandments: love God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. But there's actually three commandments in that because in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to love yourself first. Correct. Right. So it's actually three commandments: love God, love yourself, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what this uh, mm-hmm. poem that you're going through. Or, or, Reminds it, me it's of. a it's a yeah it's a prayer, it's a, prayer and, 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 uh, a Hawaiian prayer, and and it's also the reverse side of what you just said about the commandments because it, it actually doing the other side of you have to love yourself in order to love your neighbor you have to forgive yourself in order to forgive someone else. And you, and you have to yeah. do, and you have to do charity towards others to believe that charity will be to, be done to you. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. There That's you go. Important. That's very important. Thank so, that. Donnie, would would you like to do it, or Hartford, would you like to do it? I don't know if I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> you remember I, I, that? I was, I, was, <laughs> I, I was born in Hawaii, and I should be able to do it. <laughs> right. Let me give this little explanation here. Uh, One way I I remembered to you know remembered it was if you were you know going to 
ask forgiveness from somebody else, what would you do? You'd say, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Thank you, and I love you. Yeah, and just I, I, turn turn that back on yourself. So yeah. that's that's kind of the way I remembered what what to say. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And I could give you a lecture on that subject too. Good. We do that next week. We got to we got to save we got to save some of that buffet for next time. That's right. right. I love you. What is it? I love you. Yes, I, I love, love you. you. I'm going to write down the sequence. I got to be able to remember this. I can see I'm going to be called it's, upon. It's part. It's part of the commercial <laughs> process, there, Hartford. I love. You. I love you. This is. Please forgive me. Is the second. Correct. Please what forgive me. What? Yeah. Please forgive. Please forgive me. Yes. I'm sorry. Sorry. And thank you. Thank you. And we we switch up the the phrases. You know, you don't have there to do no them in that way. way. Yeah. No. Just how are you? Do you feel like doing it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you is a very important one. Most people yes, don't realize absolutely. that life, if you have to have a complete day, every day has to be a day of thankfulness. Correct. Gratitude. Yep. You have to be thankful I, for what you have, no matter what it is. Is that you classify that somebody. as part of the commercial process? What? Could you classify that as part of the commercial process? Yes, if you understand how it's connected up in the mind. Okay. You see, you have a. This is getting into another subject. I'll, I can look right. later, but the thing is, <laughs> there's a relationship between your higher mind and your lower mind. And, and, and until you assume a certain amount of humility and uh, awareness of that, you, you, there's a lot of things you lose. But when you become aware of that and you can and you learn how to uh, uh, conduct yourself properly. You're able to get a conversation going between your higher mind and your lower mind. Very valuable. Extremely. If you start start an idea, like if I start a sequence in my mind, Hartford, you must consider, and then I stop there, it's an unfinished sentence, and the higher mind will finish it and complete the information that has to be there. Mm. That's true. It's a very interesting method. We'll talk about it later. It must be when I'm when I'll say something and don't finish my sentences. I've been told I do that. So we say, <laughs> "I love you." That must. I I love you. We I repeat it, so that's okay. Go ahead. I love you. Please forgive me. I think is the one I got here written. Yeah. Please forgive Please me. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Thank you. Thank you. That was the third one, Orson. Oh, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How, how, how. And those are actually six different thank yous. We all know the thank you, but the how is Native American thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. 
kind of learned, so it's how? just add it. How? How, how, how. Usually in the Native American, when they're doing things, if they say a prayer or something at the end, they go, how, how. I don't know if they say it three times, but they um, that's what they say for, like, thank you or amen or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <coughs> well, all right. Okay. Let me just attach it. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, everybody. And this has been an exciting uh, week for all of us. No matter which way it's gone for you, you've made it through, and we can only do as uh, as you actually said, Hartford, is you keep track of one day at a time and build your memory on that one day at a time. And that is excellent rapport with yourself, with your body, with your doing, with your caring, with with all the things we do in life. So it is through our energies that we really incorporate a lot of what we're learning here on the on a Friday meeting and this this show because none of us have got it all. We're learning sound bites and I know it's a lot when uh Hartford starts, but it's so great because those sound bites I notice you have uh, gone over it numbers of times in different ways so that we really get the message. And I really thank you for that, Hartford, because otherwise we just don't grasp it all. So this is a great uh, learning and uh, comprehension for all of us. And I'm hoping those that listen to this tape later really get how valuable this information is to you to prevent what can happen in this insanity of uh, whatever they're trying to teach us. There are lessons out there. We just have to learn, what is this lesson for me today? And so with that, I want to be sure we close and bring our arms out so we gather in our our neighbors, our community, our city, our county, our state, and pull your arms together so that you're able to give the love out because it's love that's helping change a lot of people. They're getting the message. They're doing more thinking about it. They're doing more actions that are really starting to make results. And it is exciting to hear it. And so let's put our arms out and on a count of three, we're going to give our wonderful sound of E with a smile on your face because we are very powerful. Let us own our power for the good of mankind and for your good. So all together on a count of three, let's give that big hug to all our neighbors and friends. A one, a two, a three. Wow, great job, everyone. And we'll see you all back here at the OK Learning Corral for another rendition of what we can do that we're in charge of. That's what Hartford is giving us. And thank you, Charles, for saying great show. It, it's, it's the combination of everybody working together that makes something great. So let's keep combining our energies. Let's make it 
work for each one of us individually and as a group. I love you all. Have a great week. Toodly doodly and doodle doodle. What's that other one, Orpha? Hasta la toodle and hasta la lumbago. There we go. (laughs) So, Hartford, when's a good time for me to get? Hang on. I guess I was too loud at the thing. Let me turn off the recording.